Welcome to the Rocketomics Podcast, episode number 49. I'm your host, Dill, and today we sit across from Gin Blossoms guitarist, Jesse Valenzuela. Jesse has been with the Gin Blossoms from their humble beginnings back in Tempe, Arizona, before their regional success garnered the attention of the major labels and eventually resulted in getting signed by AM Records. Their first full-length album, New Miserable Experience, was a multi-platinum success that paved the way for them to become one of the 90s most successful alternative rock acts. After a three-year breakup, the Gin Blossoms returned in the early aughts and have been touring and recording ever since. I caught up with Jesse in the midst of their spring tour and our conversation that spans their 30 years of playing together went a little something like this. segment that you that you had on there um, talking about drummer Chris McCann who was one of your first drummers and you explained that he was a little bit older than you guys who was kind of the de facto manager but he was saying for you to quit your day job and I think you had a part time job at the time yeah. but he said the next horrible day job is 20 feet away at any moment the rest of your, <laughs> rest of your life it was pretty amazing uh, piece of language isn't it? <laughs> my question is to you was that a turning point to you kind of going for it like all your attention to the band 24 7 you know nothing to fall back on just yet i know you're still young and it was like you said it was a part-time job but that was that kind of i was young then um well it had been it was all or nothing at all at that point with everything i was doing there was no i, I didn't go to college i barely got through high school right so um playing guitar was really gonna be the deal okay and and um, I remember uh, getting at, getting out of high school and graduating the, like like the the bottom like three guys or something. <laughs> I barely got through it. I went and I had a lot of laughs and it was pretty. It was fun and um, it was always like Tom Hanks says that I read this quote. He's, he said. Uh, for me, school was always the laughs in the hallway between classes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I got out of it when I was just playing, and I, I was an acoustic player, and I played just bars and bars and had bands and no money. And it was dreadful. But uh, I remember being a, you know, distraught, probably, I mean, it's a couple of years, right? You know, 18, you're out of high school, so 20, 21. Are, are you living at home? In, in and out. My parents are really lovely people, so you know there was no bread to go to, to college, and I didn't have grades to go to college. Anyway. And I never really went. I kind of think I went to a community college for a couple, a couple weeks. And I remember saying to my father uh, something about school, and he said, I, I don't know that it was ever, was it really ever something that was in your cards? Right. Uh, he goes, I, I witnessed your whole thing, and all you ever did was play guitar. What are you doing? Why are you thinking about that? Why don't you just completely commit right just go I mean he was he was emphatic and he was frustrated uh, and loving at the same time right. and he had he was no more he could do sure <laughs> so go play in traffic yeah and, and he was just it was a beautiful thing and he turned 80 uh, last year I had we had a really wonderful party for him and, and people got a Gave some testimonials and I told that story about him. Because it's really, 
it really is true to his character. And he was like, you know, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. Might as well just get started. Yeah. And that really was a big change. That changed it all. When did you start, you know, I, I assume reading your biography that, you know, the gin blossoms became a regional phenomena, but you probably were making at the time what you thought was good money, right? I mean, once you guys got going and gigged, I'm assuming multiple nights a week. Sure. It was good money. You know, you're, you know, those things seem to pay back, back in the day. I still pay a little bit now. Uh, we as made, a, we as made, an amateur, we made great money as professional musicians, and and right away, and uh, and I booked the band then, and uh, took care of the bread and everything paid on Sundays, as opposed to every night because it's just it was too much hassle with five guys. So, and we would save money, uh, and we bought a van and a trailer. And did everything we need to, so we could start playing regionally. Right. Did and you ever take out? Committed. Did you take out an LLC or anything? Was Rennie like a? No. Did your damn band become a you know a no, company? No. I, mean, at I that think point? the bartender helped us get a, a loan for the van, huh. uh, and uh, we got a checking account. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a big deal. When did labels start to show interest, or how did that process kind of take hold? I think it's probably. Um, not too long after we really committed to playing. Because when we started, it was sort of a... Uh, Bill and Doug been together since they were kids. And, you know, Doug, Doug was the architect. And it really can't be overstated how much importance Bill had in the beginning. It's still now. But um, Bill's the, the conversation that happens and then songs happen. Mm-hmm. And Bill and Doug had a very special friendship because they had known each other since they were kids. Uh, and Doug loved Bill; they were very close friends. So you could—I was a third wheel, and you could witness these things going on between them, and they were hilarious together. So, uh, but they had been in band since high school, and they had a real strong uh, credi- uh, credibility in Phoenix. They were, you know, pretty seasoned artists. And they had had very successful bands, but they were more. But they weren't working bands mm-hmm. necessarily, like four or five nights a week, like what we became. They were featured creative uh, original bands that play twice a month. And then when I got in, because I was playing a regular gig, and they would come down and hang out. And I think some through 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 just luck, um, where we'd like to drink. Said, "Why don't you guys come start playing here?" And, and that's when. We had to go and learn another couple hours of cover music so we right. could play. And then everybody got used to it. It's like, oh, we can play Tuesday through Sunday. And we could play seven nights a week if we wanted to. And everybody fell in love with the bread and loved, fell in love with playing that much. And quickly got really, really good. When did uh, writing originals take hold and seeing like a response that people were, you know? Well, Doug had always written originals, so that was how the band had started that way. And then... Uh, so that was always part of it. Okay, and back to uh, you know signing a, with a major label. What were the, what was kind of the impetus for? Like I read where you guys you know were at South by Southwest at one time. You were voted you know best unsigned band by CMJ. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's it seems like there's a groundswell. When does it kind of when our record companies kind of poking around and you know? I guess it's because uh, the band started in '87, but it had been um, it's in '85 that. Bill and 
Doug and I had been playing in one thing or another, rehearsing and kind of getting together. But 87, the band starts, and somewhere in the, six, in the 16 to 18 months later, um, the I think the CMJ thing happened, or I, I don't even know how. I think that the Arts Journal in Phoenix voted us a band of the year, and because of that honor, we got invited to play at the College Music Journal in New York City. Okay. And uh, and uh, went there and played, and from that, we were spotted by uh, Tom DeSavia, uh, a wonderful guy who's become a great friend, uh, from ASCAP. And, uh, and he started sponsoring us playing in Los Angeles. And so from that point, and at that point we were a pretty strong regional act and we could play everywhere from New Orleans through San Diego and Los Angeles and we just did that. When you say sponsoring you, was he helping facilitate the cost of bringing you to Los Angeles? And, no, or? he would just get the gigs. But okay. we were making enough bread that we could get anywhere we wanted. We had, had the van and stuff. Mm-hmm. Even like getting tickets to New York City and hotels. Right. You know, the band worked a lot and, and always has. Did you drive all the way to New York? No, no, we flew. Okay. <laughs> it was a wild trip. What about management at this time? Did you have? Never had I one. know a lot of young bands still end up with management, but you guys are still DIY. We never had a manager through. Um, um, we didn't have management until until a jealousy hit, and then you'd be surprised when you have a hit song how many people want a manager. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Probably didn't even need him. How did you go about choosing one if you had a lot of people? Kind of. Well, you sort of do your best, and you. It's a. It's sort of a. I think we just did our best. I don't know if they were the greatest. It was exciting. Um, and, and they were somebody that, who, who had, were taking care of other artists on the A&M label. Mm-hmm. We were very lucky in a lot of regards that that record company really was uh, supportive. And, uh, and they were sort of, uh, they were very nurturing. Uh, we weren't the most sophisticated guys, right? And uh, are you all young twenties? No, no, we were mid twenties to okay. twenty-seven. You know, we had been playing in bars since we were fifteen, sixteen years old. But it was a different level, and we were still thinking, "Oh, it's it's four hundred eighty bucks for the gig." Yeah, you know, what's the split? <laughs> Everybody gets what they get. What was the hardest thing to learn about once getting into the system, so to speak, into the major label system? Well, like I say, we were lucky with A&M because they really did care, and, and we had a wonderful A&R people, David Anderley, uh, who since passed, was a wonderful man, and he had signed, I mean, he, he signed The Doors and Frank Zappa. Uh, he was a pretty special person. And then uh, uh, Brian Huttenhauer. Um, and Tom DeSavvy led us to some, a couple of really good people, um, a lawyer named Gene Solomon, who still takes care of us, uh, who is just a he's just a terrific guy and if we need something he, he gets it done and uh, and uh, and then when things happen we got a business manager named Gary Haber who really kept the wheels on the bus okay how so <laughs> well just the expression you used I had to follow up with that um, just because you're young well you, you, know. you know you're dealing with a you're dealing with a little bit of I mean, when I say four hundred eighty dollars for a gig, we, that was a good gig. I mean, so everybody's getting eighty bucks or whatever yeah, yeah. it is, and 
and you do that six times a week and it, it adds up so you always have money in your pocket so you can you can go to dinner which is you know cheese enchiladas <laughs> so uh, when things change and and we got a publishing deal and everybody gets a check for whatever it was a lot to, it was a lot to think about and fortunately we all sort of came from the same kind of working class environment and nobody really went crazy so they just sort of like bought houses and I think everybody kind of um, had this sort of bunker mentality that it's such a hard business mm -hmm. and uh, it says take care of ourselves so we can get, play music for the rest of our lives we did have some very good for example David Anderley said to me you know you should enjoy this time, you know, this 18 to 24, maybe 36 months of, of, of the heights. Right. Because it doesn't last, and, and, you know, let's get a second record. The second record did okay. Okay, so enjoy. So I guess maybe you are a 36-monther. So let's enjoy it. Because, uh, you know, kids want their own... I've said this before. Kids want their own heroes. And, uh, but, but you did get the brass ring because now you created um, a catalog and through your hard work you can play music for the rest of your, life. your life it's funny I pulled that, that that same quote and when he says kids want their own heroes is that is that to say also that these kids I think the context it was originally used was kids want their own heroes a couple years down the road you know they're going to be they're going to move on or there's going to be you know the next set of kids aren't going to be into that but I'm just curious if that same set of kids, like myself, I mean, I was in that wheelhouse when you guys came out. Do you find they they grow with you? Well, the bit? kids, the kids who, the kids who buy the gag, are <laughs> usually with you. I mean, it's their time that they enjoyed, and it's their time, and they and and uh, and everything that comes with it. You know, mm -hmm. your your high school days, your first apartment, your college dorm, and this, and we're the and we're the sidetrack music for it. So you usually have those people. Mm -hmm. I think what, what they meant uh, uh, was after, uh, after, after the you, success. yeah, you're not going to get the new brand. I mean, you're not going to get the next college kids. Yeah. Because they're going to move on to whatever is coming up behind us. Yeah. You've got your generation. You're mm -hmm. not going to get the next one. Which makes perfect sense. It I'm does right. make perfect sense, and it, it, and you see it in uh, very few bands get to uh, transcend that. Yeah, I can't think of any. Yeah, I mean where I mean they do. They do utilizing the music that brought them the attention, but it's pretty hard. I don't see that many bands who stay current at radio yeah. into their late thirties or forties. It's a time and a place, mm -hmm. and uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't diminish their artistry. Um, I was thinking about, you know, Tom Petty. His bat last big sort of radio record would have been what, Wildflowers or yeah, probably. is that probably right? Yeah, uh, but he kept making music. Yeah. Um, but I, I and then he would feature new songs in his shows. But it seemed to me he always had an understanding that people want to hear this. Yeah, you know? yeah. I did sure. see. I I saw Nick Lowe recently in Los Angeles at the at the El Rey. He's so funny. 
he said, you know what, I do have a new record, and, and I'm going to play a couple new songs, but please, before you start with the groans, <laughs> he, he said, quite honestly, the new songs sound just like the old ones. And um, it, as a matter of fact, this is the funny, especially funny, as a matter of fact, you might just assume that they're uh, songs from my 80s records that nobody ever bought. <laughs> So, circling back to being nurtured by the label, that makes me bring up the point that did you guys have a hard time recording the first album, or did they? It's not like they shelved an album, but I, I, I guess I read where it, you guys had to put on an EP to kind of bridge the gap to get the finished LP out. We tried to make a record with a, a producer named Albie Galuton. But he was just the wrong choice, and he was very hot at the moment because he had done some. He had just done a couple a, a, a record that had gotten a lot of attention, and we went to Los Angeles and recorded this really beautiful old studio room owned by Richie Pottlelore, and uh, uh, it didn't work. It, it was it it just it it didn't have any magic on it, mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, they just sent us home. Were you guys feeling it? That wasn't have any magic. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. was it kind of you? You know, once you brought it to your A and R guys, they were like, "No, no, we knew." Okay. It's like this isn't very good. <laughs> we had fun though, right? And uh, we didn't get along with the producer, and he didn't like us, uh, which is a bad, bad choice. And I, I don't blame him. We were, we were a handful, and uh, we didn't really want to listen to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but in fairness to us too, he wasn't listening to what we could do. He really was hot at the time, and he really wanted to uh, do what he does. create his sound, which was really way too sophisticated for us. Mm -hmm. And we're like, I, I don't. He's like, Can you sing the second? I, go, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> you know, and one, 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 four, five on a piano with a harmony note. So I'm like, I, I do. I, you know, I can't sing the background part. I don't know, right? But it's like, but what in in what Jim Blossom song would you ever hear that? Yeah. So what happened? You guys ended up going with I forget his name, but he was like the uh, replacements producer at one point. No, or the oh, engineer. oh the, so we ended up going to see John Hampton, and in, 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 they found John, and they had been doing some work with him on other records, and so uh, it was a nice fit because John was very relaxed and he was southern, and he sort of got the sort of boozy. Uh, temperament of the band mm -hmm. and and just sort of he said this year we're just gonna put up microphones and capture what it is you guys do and if something needs to be straightened out we'll take care of it and playing for long as, as you insinuated you guys were probably a pretty tight band yeah played for live for so long a bar band for so we long we were but what did happen was that because we played live so long we wanted to keep people excited we played really fast and you can see it in the the LP we we made by ourselves. The temples are like it never even gets near anything less than a hundred or anything below one hundred and fifty beats per right. minute. So it's hard to put. So John had to sort of pull us back. I mean, he but he only still only got us like one hundred and forty three, which are crazy <laughs> ass fast beats, and that doesn't really transcend to radio that well, right? Uh, and. But he figured out a way to do it, and it was hard. And I remember when we made that record, and we went back home, and people would hear it. They say, "I, I think you you ruined it." 
you know, because people are so used to hearing it at this yeah, breakneck tempo, and 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 we used to do that because it's exciting. Yeah, but it kind of wear you out. Is your live show now? Would you say are you up to tempo? Or are you still? No, I think we've we've you know, our advanced years toned it back. We've toned it back, but it's still <laughs> crazy busy. In fact, it, it sometimes you're like, does it really have to be that fast? <laughs> but I'm probably the one who. Who would play a little slower if I could? Mm-hmm. So first album comes out and it's a smash. But again, it seems like it falls in this the the story of like it didn't take off right away. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. So I wasn't aware of that. It's funny. The first time I became aware of you guys, I got sent a single from a mailing list from like the label mailing list. Um, so immediately it was like. To me, it was just like overnight success. Like this, what a fantastic song! And then two weeks later, it's on the radio, and that's a smash hit. But what? It was just a slow, you know, naturally slow going. Um, I, yeah, I think they released it. They released Jealousy twice. I think the first time it didn't catch on, and we just remained on the road. And then it, and and then, uh, you know, nine months to a year later, it started to catch a little heat. And signing with the label was that the first time you guys took to the road and kind of you know really crisscross the United States we had been sort of a regional act through the southwest but uh, we hadn't uh, when we when we made that EP we we dropped a little money of our own and took a a national tour in a van Uh, I don't know why we did that but we thought it was important at the time and and, because even the label's like what are you doing (laughs) because I I since found out from other friends of mine who've, who've who you know, moved to Los Angeles and, and, and got record deals and publishing deals. And, and then, and they said, oh, I didn't tour. I mean, I, I never toured until I, I had to. Right. Go, you didn't just go out there. We were so... I feel like that was the old school way to do it. And that's all we knew. And that's what we thought it was important. And plus, we just liked it. Yeah. And we were, you know, in Boise, Idaho in the middle of the winter. It was Thanksgiving. It wasn't the middle of the winter, but it was Thanksgiving. Uh, and I remember we had our Thanksgiving dinner twice at a Denny's because we had to get from Boise to Denver or something insane. And by the time we got to Minnesota, it, you know, we had never seen snow so high. And uh, and then all the way through the Midwest and the Northeast and hit all the places we wanted to see. We played at CBGB's on that tour. Then back down through the South and then across through the South and then across through Texas and back home. So we did we did the whole country. We didn't sell any tickets. Nobody knew who we were. We didn't sell any EPs either. Right. But I don't know. It just seemed like it was something we had to do. At this point, did you have the luxury of having a driver or a roadie or anybody to tie We had on? a guy. A guy? Yeah, we had a guy. <laughs> Tell us what everything. Um, so with that success, I know you guys You know, were on you know, all the TV shows. Uh, I remember the Jon Stewart show back when it was on MTV, um, which... You described not the John Stewart show, but you described playing these shows, Leno and Letterman, as terrifying. But once you did it, it kind of made you feel there was nothing you could not do. It's true. It's true. And it passes so quickly that three-minute so- song feels like it's over in about eighteen seconds, and then after that, you're like, ah, like that's it. I guess that. <laughs> yeah, I'll be okay. Did you guys? Um, were you at the point where you were opening for? you know, a more established band when you guys first came out? Did you ever do major tours like that? We did. We did a we did a, a lot of it. We did a... A&M would send us out with people that they were on the label. We did a... 
a strange matching. It was really beautiful, though. We went out with um, the Neville brothers and did a lot of touring with them. And um, they were really nice to us. Uh, I mean, not effusively so, but very respectful. And, uh, and, and we played some really beautiful theaters that we had no business being in. <laughs> now, would you, would you tend to slow the tempo down in that case? We didn't or have any idea. Of, no. Take the distortion off a little? No. <laughs> no. It was just not an assault. And I remember playing the, um, that beautiful theater in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, it'll come to me later. Playing the Friday. <laughs> it's a seated theater, too. Uh, and, and and I think that um, the LA Times reviewed it. Maybe it was Hilburn who said uh, he glowing review to the to the Neville Brothers. And then he said, and then the opening act. I remember the A and M loved it. They, they put the they used the quote. I'll have to paraphrase it, but he said something. He goes, it was like having a grilled cheese at Spago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something to that effect. That. That it was fun, you know. I don't know why they're there, yeah. <laughs> but but they were really enjoyable, and they were they were certainly excited. That's awesome. That's a great quote. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess a couple. I'm. I, I have a date in 2016. You guys were on the cover of Musician Magazine. Um, I couldn't source it unfortunately, but the cover said "Triumph Tragedy," and a savvy rec- record strategy. Triumph and tri- is that the. Musician from the old days? Yeah. Or 20, 2016? The old days. That's, oh. That's, I'm sorry. 20... I'm sorry. That's, I think that's uh, 96. Oh, 96. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I misread that. Um, my question is, savvy re- record strategy. What would they be referring to? Like, did you guys have a way of kind of going out and doing things? Or did you have a business strategy of how you're going to... I don't think... I mean, uh, we didn't per se. You know, but... By then we had management, and and uh, if I look back at it now, I realize, it, you know, if if a song's percolating and then the manager comes on, he's a, in a pretty lucky position, so things are already moving. He he didn't have to jockey us there, and we were trying to get this manager for a long time, and he was always on the fence, but when the indicators were really fantastic, of course he would jump on, uh, and that's really kind of what happened. And he had said himself later, because people were crediting him with brilliant management stuff and he and, uh, he, he said it was kind of moving already <laughs> it's interesting I mean like I said I couldn't source that original article but I was curious to what to, if there was I don't something think they make that magazine it. anymore no they don't they don't so in between New Miserable Experience and your next album you guys did the Empire uh, Empire Music soundtrack how did you come in contact with uh, Marshall Crenshaw through Tom DeSavia and, and Jim Cardillo, our manager, or our, 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 our um, publisher. Okay. So they they each knew Marshall, and I had always been a fan, uh, and they said, well, I think he would write with you if we can kind of set something up, and I met him at the South by Southwest event sometime around then. So how did you guys get to, you know, ha- how did you guys hammer out, you know, uh, what I went to his hotel room, and uh, we just kind of started playing, and then... Uh, we went to have Thai food and then came back and finished it. Wow. So it was that quick. Really. It was pretty fast. That's great. Um, so congratulations. I'm sorry it comes out. It's fairly successful. Um, but you guys call it quits, uh, you know, I guess after that 
album cycle? Was it just band tension, life tension? Well, I think that all of that, and I think it was pressurized. And people say, well, that's stupid. It wasn't. But, you know, if you're on the inside of that, and, and all of the... All of, all of the backstory and the subtext and uh, there was lots of things said about the Jim Blossoms not honoring Doug's commit, uh, contributions and, and even horrible things about like maybe that we had taken advantage of him and taken his money from him and stuff like that right. which, which is all completely untrue I just saw a quote recently about somebody saying that here in 20 whatever year this is <laughs> Uh, still suggesting that something like that happened, you know, it 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 wouldn't have, right? It didn't, and um, and it would never have crossed our minds to do something like that. And secondly, that's not at all how the business runs. So when I see a quote from that, I just realize that it's someone who just really has a very small understanding of how the music business works, right? But all of that led up to it, you know. And I think that um, also we had been together for years. And uh, uh, we were a commodity, and it wasn't uh, our mat. Uh, that first manager we had split for another gig right away. That was going to promise him more bread. God bless him. You know, you got to move along, move along. Uh, left us in a position without. We weren't sure what to do, and I think the pressure was a lot. People thought. Uh, when you're at this at this level that you can probably kind of do anything you want to and it'll be okay well it really kind of was everything worked out but I think it was just all that right um, I know this is a sens- sensitive subject and I, I asked this in the context of kind of the theme of Rockonomics it does have to do with money and, and it's to the point that you mentioned about you know Doug and not getting a fair deal what was the truth or what's the story behind did he end up having to, he ended up having to sign over half his publishing? No. Or, okay. I, I, I mean, listen, I, I don't listen. I, don't I, I, I only bring it up because I've got it from the most unreliable source. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah, if you consider the source and the intent, then you're probably on to the next page. Listen, I don't have um, privy to Doug's publishing. Uh, it's Warner, him and Warner Chapel. Right. And he had. That deal he had cut with Warner Chapel was the deal we had all cut before we even made a record. Right. So that deal was there. There's no way they would come back to him. He had written a, he had hit, written a massively huge hit song, uh, and then did, did it again in the same tour cycle, same right. record. So, uh, no, he his his uh, his writing was honored. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't know where that started. Uh, that the, rumor, yeah, I uh, heard that there was this idea that some of it was taken to pay someone else for this. I don't know how anybody, I don't know how anyone in this free world could have managed to do something like that. Yeah, I, I heard half publishing and all mechanicals, and all I could, I, all I could think about was, did he owe the, you know, did the, did did he owe the record company for leaving a contract or something like that? But you know. no, I mean, to my knowledge, no, I don't know. I don't know how that kind of right. that's. I don't even know if something like that could happen. Sure, and um, and so when I hear about that, I remember I don't. It's been years, but sometimes I was sitting in a bar once, and some guy said that to me, something like that, and kind of 
made me a little angry. I can see why. I mean, that's dogged you guys, at least in the early days. Yeah, and it still rears its head every once in a while. I mean, I'm surprised that there's still someone out there saying things like that. But no. What's the internet? The internet never. The internet never dies. Well, it was on. There was <laughs> a. There was an article in somewhere in the Northeast just recently, and, and the guy, he it was part of his leadoff. It was the strangest. It was the strangest little piece because he he's sort of celebrating the band too, but then had to get his dig in. And I think that a lot of young writers want to do that because they're proving themselves and they got to run contrary. And and I did an interview with a kid. In my home. I don't live in Los Phoenix anymore, but I, that's where I grew up. But I did a interview with a kid a couple of years ago and he was asking me pretty innate questions uh, and, and I it kind of wanted to delve into that but I think he was a little fearful mm-hmm. so he tried feeling around the tender bits and said well how did it feel when Doug died to which I'm like what well, how would how would you feel yeah just run that through your own filter and think about it and then I'll answer you could take a minute if you want and the article came out in the arts journal and I and I mean he could paint it any way, way he wants I don't care but he really made me the uh, get off my lawn guy <laughs> and I remember my cousin Steve calls me and goes hey hey grandpa <laughs> did he get you on a bad day <laughs> <laughs> it was funny, but I, I really can't. I mean, I'm not going to suffer fools anymore. Right, I was right. like, you know what, kid? It's okay. You can ask the question, and I can also answer it in any way I want. How long ago was this? Mm, let's say three years ago. Okay. It's funny because on your Twitter account, very recently, somebody tagged you and said, oh, he must not have been in, in a good mood or something like that. And you said, I, I had a great time at the interview, and I went to the interview, and it, it was a fine interview, but it just seemed like you gave... You gave the answers to the questions without elaborating. I don't know what the context was, but that's... Oh, I love that interview. That was a good one. <laughs> I'll tell you the context of that. It, it's, it's, been the, uh, it's been the rainiest uh, winter in Los Angeles. Okay? So, I'm packing and getting ready for a tour. Uh, uh, my, my wife's gone off to work, and my son's in and out of the townhouse, and it starts leaking. Right. And then... Oh yeah, we're doing the interview right now. <laughs> so I'm like, what is with buckets? <laughs> so, okay, but he was a really interesting. He was a good interview. He was he was a very funny guy, and so we were having a laugh at the same time. Because I told him, I said, I got, I got to. Yeah, <laughs> I think the plumber comes when you're giving the interview. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's get back to so you. Jim Blossom's breakup, where's your head at? Are you feeling liberated or are you feeling, oh shit, what do I do now? Uh, well, yeah, you know, it was a, what are you going to do? It was, a, it was my, it had been my whole commitment up to that point. And I, and I just had a, I think, I, I think my son was about to be born. So there was a lot going on. Mm, a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, I mean, I figured. It's like a lot of life pressure versus business pressure you know yeah I mean it's gonna work out one way or another yeah I mean I remember thinking I'd worked hard and saved my bread so we were okay um I just wanted to do something I, I, I wanted to do something and it was hard and, and the business was changing at that time too and it sort of occurred to me that kids do want their own heroes and it would be hard to reinvent something 
and capture that uh, level we were at. Mm-hmm. And when we we had been there for so long, and and um, it's hard to imagine you you would come back here, right, to be a wine bar player or something. Which I did think. Well, I could end up. I could just go back to being a wine bar player, and and we have a nice home. Right. <laughs> uh, which wouldn't be such a bad thing and enjoy golf and, and I had a nice I had a at that for those years I was working I was uh, I had a publishing deal and I was writing songs for people and stuff like that a lot of film and TV I was going to ask that was my next question how did that how did you get involved in that because I know you did um, well we were living in California well that's where we live uh, living in California and just uh, through the through the rounds of songwriting from New York to Nashville and Los Angeles and things just sort of start winding up in movies and the Jim Blossoms always had a, did really well in, in movies and so songs would wind up or just having to write bits and pieces of music and there was a time in Los Angeles when all of my contemporaries were trying to uh, trying to get off the road because we had reached the age where we were starting to have children right. and so everybody was trying to think uh, well maybe I could write for TV uh, be a composer and I tried a bit of that I did a I did a little I did some uh, what do you call that uh, learning channel like travel channel mm-hmm. I did those I did those gigs in, in a studio with a computer and, and I was like at the end of the day I, uh, you know it's like eight bucks an hour <laughs> uh, I'd rather just write songs so right. that's what I did um, but my that, my pals who stuck it out really enjoyed that, you know it changes it's like right. everything but I was a little short sighted so I was like I just can't do that and I don't know if I was built for that kind of work what about um, I know you did commercials That's, yeah that, did that pay well oh yeah no all that work is terrific and especially at that time it paid really well a lot has changed with the advent of the of the personal computer <laughs> fortunately so you can get kids in a, in a room like this with their mad crazy computer skills and, and they could write you a a pretty amazing score. Yeah. Um, so, moving on to the reunion, that was back in 2001, or at least New Year's mm-hmm. Eve. New Year's Eve going to 2002, or yeah, I think it was 2000. It was the same year my son was born. What's What's different? You guys are just a little bit older. You uh, kind I, of. Yeah, I mean, I was reminded recently by Bill that we actually had a. Uh, almost three years away from each other because I always thought it was like 18 months I thought it was longer than that yeah it's about three years yeah, uh, yeah I guess it was but it seems to me but I but I remember it differently like it seems like we were still playing shows once in a while and I think we did like we would like <laughs> I'll see it in nine months and for some reason there would be some charity show so it always seemed like I, I think we'll be playing music together again I always always just seemed that way to mm-hmm. me. Now, I think this is a quote from you, but saying, not even much of a quote, but just having bad experiences with indie labels. Because at the time, you guys released, in 2006, you released uh, Major Log Victory under a label called Hybrid. Mm-hmm. And then 2010 was uh, No Chocolate Cake with uh, 429 Records. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Did you, ha- did you feel you weren't quite sure what you were getting out of the indie labels? Or I think part of that quote was you weren't sure if you had more than a computer working for you or <laughs> a I think hard that's drive. about right. <laughs> you know, like a, a, a guy in his garage. 
right? With How did those with a worn out Dell? Right. <laughs> How did those even come about? Like finding those labels, or were those local to you know, L.A. Just, or the West? Just or? management. I, I think that Hybrid was was part was uh, run by um, someone we had worked with in the past, um, and a lot of these, a lot of our experience was that it's difficult to get accounting um, and the business had changed so drastically in that 10 years and people weren't buying records yeah. and, and they weren't buying records from guys in their mid 40s right I mean you know and and, and every, it's like I had said before when you're at that level you sort of you, you think it will always remain that way and it doesn't and then you don't know what to do here when you only sell I think that that, set, that record sold about 45,000 units, which today would be amazing. Right. But at 2006, people still thought. And I remember thinking, because I have a, a more pragmatic, pragmatic approach, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And if you just don't spend that much money on a record, if you spend 10 or 15, 20,000 on a record and you sell 45,000 units, that's a hit. And I had been releasing solo records on my own, and I would do a record for eight to ten thousand dollars, and sell, um, like, I think over the years I've sold a lot of them. But even then, to sell twenty thousand units, right? And then you make it for ten thousand dollars. It's a nice little cottage industry, so I wish to do it. That has since changed. And if I release a record now, I I can sell, you know, four or five thousand units, and then a lot of downloads and stuff like that. Right. But they don't, it, people just don't buy records anymore. I mean, they don't have a CD player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, nothing tangible anymore except. How have you guys been doing with uh, vinyl sales? Have you seen, have not you guys really. been swept up in that? I think that, <laughs> and well, I'd love to, to hear what you think, but honestly, I, I, my experience has been that um, it's, it's, it's a romantic notion. It's fun to say, well, vinyl is selling. Yeah. Well, it is, but how, 11 copies? Yeah. <laughs> So, Even, does it really, is it substantiate anything yeah. big? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not but has anybody come, is, you know, has anybody come to you, you know, to release, you know, I know you guys just celebrated 25 years of New Miserable experience. I think that there is some New Miserable vinyl. But it seems, is that part of the, you know, part of the celebration? You know, it's yeah, I think, that they, I think they did a short little run with a, a record company. And I know that we, we had a conversation with another label that, that specializes in releasing vinyl, and they wanted to do our indie record and some other stuff. But I think we've just opted, maybe we'll just do it ourselves mm -hmm. and make, make it sort of, sort of package, I guess. I don't know. Right. Was um, Major Log Victory and No Chocolate Cake, were those self-financed, or were they, they partly self-financed? No, those were done on deals with record companies. Okay. And then, um, I'm trying to think of I even have the, your, your last LP that you guys did with uh, Mitch Easter and Don Dixon. Yeah. Is that, that was... That was self-financed. Okay. Mixed reality. Mixed reality. Correct. So did you guys come to, outside of Winston-Salem to record that? Mm -hmm. In uh, Fidelitorium? Okay. How was that experience? It was nice. <laughs> and seeing as you had to self-finance it, were you guys all kind of in line of what you needed to do and how you're going to spend it and who you're going to spend it with we spent too much we spent way too much 
How long did it take to record? Not very long. Not very long. And I'd worked with Mitch before on other records, and he, uh, he was gracious enough to cut a couple of my songs over the years. Um, uh, and and he's a really he's a really bright guy. He's nice to be around. Mm-hmm. Him and Mitch, Don and Mitch, they're really nice to be nice people to be around. But we cut. I mean, we're we're actually kind of good at making records, so we could do it pretty fast. And um, no one really. Well, Robin loves the loves the Ice Station Zebra lock away and be you know uh, make a record and everybody goes away together right but honestly everybody else is like in their lives and with children and and homes and um, they can make a Dropbox record I could and I I prefer them and I think they're just as good (laughs) Uh, but I can dig I can dig everybody has to get together and uh, and knock out basic tracks and then go home but what we did was uh, because I didn't want to uh, we worked so much I didn't really want to spend another month away from home so we went in and cut the stuff and the band works really good in the studio so uh, it's like day one almost all the basic tracks day two basic tracks are all done and then Bill starts playing bass and that night time Scotty and I come out and knock out guitars and so four or five days later what do you need what else do you need Don and he's like Will you sing your harmonies at home? And I said, sure, just send me the copies. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I go, well, do you mind? And he goes, oh, I'm going to mind having to... No. If you will do it at home, I'm fine. And he goes, I heard, I know it's not a big deal. You do this all the time. Yeah. So I went home. We all <laughs> and he sent, me the, he sent me the stems and sang and sent them back. It's funny. Yeah, I was up there. He, he was on one of my early shows. Very nice man. Yeah, he's very talented. He hears everything. Yeah, funny story too. Just how it started out of his parents' garage way back. Right, him and Mitch both. Yeah, they're both they're both really pretty phenomenal musicians on anything you hand them. Yeah, heard that. Um, so I'll start to wind things down. So what's next? Um, what do you What do you want to be next? What do you want your next five years to look like? Well, uh, you know, we work a lot. Um, I, I I think that I, I'd like to I'd like to get to where the Jim Balsams are seventy five shows a year, as opposed to one hundred and ten. And I would like my son to finish college and and know that he's comfortable and happy in, his, in what he wants to pursue. I mean, honestly, my life has sort of changed that way. That I, I, I'm going to play music no matter what, because I don't know where else I would find the the bread and the livelihood. That's all I've ever known, but. My, what I think about is is much different. It's more about oh, I hope I, I want to keep moving the family along and get everybody to where they want to be. My son says I think I'm much older in my head than I am. <laughs> Does your son still play drums, or was he a drummer? Uh, he likes playing drums. He's sort of a guitar player, bass player, but um, he seems to be going in a uh, uh, and knock on wood. He seems to be heading in a more academic pursuit these days. That's good, eh? Oh my god! <laughs> but you said uh, your wife's worried your son will play drums and they don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Carrie says, "Well, she's a very bright woman. She's edu- really educated." Because she, she used to say, "Because I used to say, well, I think he's just going to be a bass player, and we'll see him every six months when he comes through town and he needs to do laundry." She goes, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> 
Um, before I forget, I want to circle back. Just these, you know, you had a Summerland tour years ago, 2012, with Everclear, Sugar Ray, Lit, Marcy Playground, and you're mentioning this summer hooking up with um, Collective Soul. How did those come about when you hook up with kind of your contemporaries from, you know, when you guys kind of shared the heyday together? Well, you Is that know, just management putting it together, or are you guys all kind well, of... It's funny, because we play with Collective Soul a lot, and, and they're such a great band, and... and uh, we'll just be wind up on these shows together these festivals all over and we've gotten along over the years and then we would do like three or four shows together uh, and enjoy their company and then this year uh, Ed came to a couple shows and and uh, I think he was looking for someone to tour with for the summer because mm-hmm. we always get such a great reaction when we play together so that happened and then his, his, his management reached out to ours and and they were able to figure out a great tour, and it looks really terrific, and we're excited to be going out with them. That's great. Hopefully, uh, you'll pass by here again. So I end each show with the same five questions, same final five questions. So the first question is, um, your house is on fire, your loved ones are safe, what do you run back and get? What has the most sentimental value to you music-wise? So not pictures or anything like that. It really it says no, pictures, it could be, right? It could be whatever... I, I'd say more memento. What I, I don't want to give you the answer, but everyone keeps saying my guitar, my guitar. Where I want to hear like, oh, the pick you got from Bob Dylan. <laughs> uh, it could be your guitar. If that's. I. <laughs> I'm sadly. I would tell you that. I always think. Well, I think the guitar's insured, so I had to get a new one. <laughs> but I do love. Um. I'm so defi- I, I'm so identified with my my red Stratocaster, and, and somebody I have these religious icon stickers on my guitars uh, that I got in New Mexico when I was a kid. Uh, I think I probably have to I get that one. Okay. Question two is: If the success of the Rockonomic podcast was so great, I was able to give you a check for a million dollars to give to one charity of your choice. Which charity would get it? Oh uh, well. Uh, I, I, I've been really touched by um, uh, the St. Jude's work and uh, I, I just recently did a, a I was the on children's a, hospital? yeah I, I just recently did a I was in, doing an acoustic tour by myself and I was in Portland and there, I, I played at this uh, I went and played for a, a, a children's hospital up there I think something that would be a nice thing to do sure for sure question three is what would your walk up music be to the pearly gates? I don't, I don't know. You know, the other day somebody asked me about a song, and I and I, I cited uh, uh, Green Onions. What song is that? Uh, I should know that. Uh, the Booker T and the MGs. Okay. That's got a nice pocket. All right. The reverse of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what's stuck on repeat in hell? I, I don't want to knock on anybody, but there are definitely some songs. <laughs> you can tell me off uh, off mic. <laughs> Last question is, uh, best concert or live performance you've ever witnessed? Best concert or live performance? I shouldn't say. I, I, I don't like, I don't go to that many shows because mm-hmm. I think it's kind of boring. And I always have. I always like concerts. Uh, but I did see a fabulous concert, and this just shows my age. When I was young, I saw uh, uh, Nick Nick Lowe, and I just mentioned him earlier, but he, oh, he's always such a great show. I saw him play um, 
when I was probably 18 uh, at a place called After the Gold Rush in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was a pretty amazing show. <laughs> it's always very cool to hear. Um, I have one more question. Just uh, I noticed on your website you've got the, the Axe store. Oh, yeah. Where you sell, I don't want to get the brand wrong, is it the Fender? The Fender Guitars. Now, is that something where you just get a small percentage of anybody who clicks through? Um, Carrie, my girl, set this up. Okay. So she said, why don't you sell Fender guitars? And I said, I don't, I'm not a dealer. And she goes, well, we'll call Fender and see what they say. I said, don't. And she goes, give me your guy who I've been with forever, Billy Siegel, is my Fender rep. And, and so she called him, and, uh, and, uh, and he said, why not? Put put it up, and uh, and um, and cut a deal, and so there's a little store. He said, "He goes sure." Yeah, it was funny. I, when I first came upon, it, I thought they were yours, okay. and then I, you know, upon further inspection, it was a yeah, no, and, I, and, and I sell out. some. I do. It, it, it's nice. I think people like the it, listen. It, they get they get it. They get a better price with me than they do at uh, a guitar center, right? And. Um, and it's nice, and uh, I've met met some very sweet people who wanted to buy guitars for their kids for Christmas, and a couple other people, like professional players who I've known for years, like, hey, dude, seriously, can you get me this? I said, I, I guess. I mean, I really out, but it's been nice. I kind of, I kind of like it. Now you mentioned that's been your guy for years. So this was you guys got <coughs> you, at, at an early point of your career. You got an endorsement, or you got a. a Yes. Deal at some point. Okay. Yeah, I've always had a Fender endorsement because I primarily played Fenders and Gretches. Okay. All right. Well, Jesse, I appreciate you giving me sure. your time. I hope it was okay. It was fantastic. Right. Thank you. Sure. All right. It was really great to meet Jesse Bellinswell of the Gin Blossoms. Catch them on tour if you can. They sound better than ever. There's clips all over the internet. Robin sounds great. The band is tight. So go get their tour dates on ginblossoms.net and keep pace with them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. As for plugging the podcast, we too are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It would also be appreciated if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and while you're there, rate us and leave us a comment. We'll be back next Tuesday with our 50th episode and the stars have aligned to deliver us a really great surprise guest. So definitely join us for this one. Okay, episode 49 is calling it a day. Until next week, good night, Cleveland.